Lamentations chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 21 to 36 tonight. And the the idea of God's mercy. Now, we look at Lamentations. I'm going to keep going over this to make sure that we got it. You have five poems in Lamentations. Uh, so each poem, but well, each, each of the four, first four, are all acrostics, meaning each verse begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and there's 22 verses, and they end. Chapter 3 is three times as long. Three times as long makes the emphasis as you go through five poems and you see one three times longer. That is the one that everything is pointing to. This is the one where, where our questions, I, I don't know if really it's our questions that are going to be answered as much as it'll be the, the source of our understanding. Where, where do we get uh, any understanding from the things that we're suffering and the things we go through. So if you remember, chapter 1 was a poem picturing a woman who had lost everything, lost family, nobody's around. She's in the streets crying out to God, asking God to look upon her in her distress. Uh, and then she mentions at the end of the poem, she mention, mentions the fact that the reason she's in the place that she's in is a result of her own rebellion and sin. That's the first poem. Second poem focuses on the fall of Jerusalem. And all of these are, are all these poems are pointing to the destruction of a city. The city is the focus, the loss of a city, the loss of, of uh, uh, the future, I guess, and the hope that, uh, that the nation... Uh, saw Jerusalem as, so when Jerusalem goes down, you see a lot of losing uh, of that uh, grip on hope. Chapter 2 talks about the fall of Jerusalem and the source of the fall being the wrath of God. Chapter 3, the longest poem of all of the poems, is going to deal with the idea that we can find satisfaction in the Lord. The idea, if you go through scripture and you want to find an answer for pain, everybody does this uh, one time or another. I want an answer for the pain. What's the answer? God never gives you an answer for the pain. He never does. What he gives you is his presence. And that's the focus of the first 22 verses of Lamentations chapter 3, focusing in on the fact that God is... His presence is what we need. His presence. All these other things are going to happen, right? We talked about the 23rd Psalm. What did David write in the 23rd Psalm? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of... He didn't say, yea, maybe we'll have hard times in our life. He didn't say that. What did he say? I will walk through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. And when I do, all the pronouns will change in David's writing of the 23rd Psalm and he will use personal pronouns about the presence of God being with him. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table uh, before me in the presence of mine enemies, right? So it's all, it gets very personal in that time. So what is it that God has given us to deal with the hardships and heartaches and pain of life? He's giving himself. He's saying he's the answer, not the reversal of fortunes, but rather 
finding your satisfaction in his presence, where he is. So remember the focus in in Lamentations chapter 3 is the faithfulness of God. God's presence is always there. Uh, that that uh, center piece of, of uh, Lamentations 3 we'll look at again tonight. But in verse 21 he says, But this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't mean God doesn't love you. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, verse 24. The Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. His presence is what I need. He's my inheritance. He's the peace that I need to have. But Lamentations ends. Lamentations chapter 4 is also going to be another acrostic. And then 5 throws the acrostic out the window. And all the verses are helter-skelter and just filled with chaos and pain. So the emphasis when we get to the end of the book of Lamentations is not that shame on you if you despair. Shame on you if you get depressed. Shame on you if you struggle in your suffering. That's not the point. The point is you will. Despair is real. It's a, it's a pain not to be, uh, obviously we don't want it. Nobody ever wants it in their life. But I, I bet if we went through the room, there's not anyone here who has not felt despair, depression in their life. And so the Lord is saying, no, this, these are real things. But the presence of God is still our focus. And we want to put our focus there. So Lamentations chapter 3, where we find ourselves tonight, is the search for answers. But just like the book of Job, right? Just like Ecclesiastes... Uh, just like the, the writings of, of wisdom, the wisdom literature, uh, the poetry that God gives us, he does not give us answers. He gives us himself, which is consistent with scripture all the way through, right? How do you overcome your sin? Does God give you an answer? Yeah. Who? Jesus, right? How do we overcome the things we need to overcome in life? This is going to be the answer as we continue to work our way through. So let's look at this. The greatness of God's mercy in verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now this is, the song is a lament, a funeral lament for the destruction of a nation. A nation ceases to exist uh, the day that this poem is written. And the author of the poem, Jeremiah, looking out over it, is still saying that the mercies of God are with him, even though the circumstances look dire. The Lord has always preserved a remnant through whatever hardships have gone on. He is always, his mercies are always there. His steadfast love, that's the word chesed, it means his faithful love or loyal love. So the picture is that God is a, just always describes the relationship between him and his people as a marriage. And it's a marriage in which he is faithful and his people are not. He has loyal love. The people who, who come to the Lord, who hear from God saying, uh, what's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's, the, that's it. That's the 
focus of, of the law, love God. But it's God who describes his love as loyal. He does not describe ours that way. Because what happens to our love? Our love is loyal as long as we get what we want. Right? And as soon as we don't get what we want, we do what people have done for all time. What did the children of Israel do when they didn't get what they wanted in the wilderness? They start complaining. They start grumbling. So the Lord would say, your love, he would, in describing the love of the people, your love is like the dew in the morning. It's there one minute, and then it's gone. But the Lord says, I, my love doesn't go away. My love is still there. His mercies are still there. They're new every morning. Psalm 36.5 talks about the idea, the dependability of God. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven. Your faithfulness to the clouds. We talked about this last time. When you have little ones, my little, my little grandson, Owen, is over. We got into it again today. I was watching him. Kathy had a dentist appointment. And he always will say to me, it doesn't matter what's going on. He'll, he'll, I walk by him and he'll say, I love you, Papa. And this is the beginning. And then I will say, I love you too, Owen. And then he'll say, I love you more than ever. And I will say, I love you more than that. And now, now we're, we're into it. Then it's, I love you a thousand. And I'll say, I love you a million. Because if there's no sense in going shorter than that, he's going to take big leaps. And then he says, I love you infinity. And I say, I love you infinity plus one. And we do this, this thing. Here, the psalmist, when he describes God's love, is describing God's love that way. It fills the heavens. The, all of the heavens are filled. It extends forever. This is the idea, right? God's love never fails. His compassion will never fail. Now, having compassion and having justice are two different things, right? Compassion and justice can exist at the same time, but you might not like what it looks like. Right? Don't you remember hearing this from your, from your parents when you was little? Okay, I love you, son. And this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. But it's going to happen anyway, right? Have, have we all not said that at one time or another? When we look out over our children, it doesn't mean we don't love them, right? The Bible says those whom the Lord loves, he will discipline, chastise promptly. He won't wait. That chastisement will come. But that chastisement, that judgment does not mean his commitment to you has changed. Right? Any more than it means your commitment to your child has changed. If you ever had to discipline your child, it didn't mean you wanted to throw them away the next day, right? Because the first part of the verse is still true. His love never fails. His mercies are new. When? Every morning. Every morning they are new. His commitment doesn't change. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our lord jesus christ he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it 
Let me tell you an easier way to say that. Whatever God starts in you, he will finish. If I have begun a good work in you, he says, I will be faithful to complete it. That's what he's talking about. Now, sometimes that requires discipline, chastisement, difficult circumstances, right? David was a man after God's own heart, but he went through a lot of hard times, didn't he? But that's what it took to make the man of God. So he, he, his commitment doesn't change because our circumstances do. If you go to the doctor tomorrow and the doctor says you have cancer, it doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean God doesn't have a purpose for you. His commitment to you hasn't changed. His love for you has not changed. The only thing that has changed is your circumstances, right? That's, those things are not linked. In Hebrews 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Will God keep his word? He will. Even if you got to walk a hard road, for sure. Will he get you through it? He doesn't promise to remove it from us, but he gives us his presence so that we can endure. Yeah? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. You're here, so I don't have to be afraid. You're with me in the struggle. You're with me in the destruction of a nation. You're with me in the destruction of my city. You're with me in the loss of all these things. You are here. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 11, it says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, her body was dead, she had already gone through menopause, but the Lord gave her a child, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She trusts God. But what if the circumstance don't look good? Trust God. This is one of them times where there's just two rules. You know, first rule, trust God. Second rule, if you're wavering, see rule number one. Right? It's not overly complicated. It's a call to trust God. Now, listen, there are people that we're reading here about here in Lamentation are going through a tremendous difficulty but it's it's laying out this idea that <clears throat> it's because of God's mercy that we are not consumed he has mercy the picture of the goodness of God it's a Hebrew word yada yada is going to be repeated uh, every time verse 24 25 and 26 the goodness of God the goodness of God the goodness of God what do you think his point is is to do you know, when we, we can become, and he's going to give us some clues tonight on how to adjust our attitude. But our attitudes get lousy. Yeah? Last night, I'm up in my office studying, and Kathy's downstairs watching Fox News. Lord, have mercy on my soul. And I can hear them. And whatever they're talking about is making me mad. Pretty soon, I'm not doing what I was doing, now I'm thinking about all the stuff, all the political stuff and whatever things frustrate me about government and politics and 
So I hollered down to Kathy, turn that down. <laughs> I can hear it up here. What do you focus on when you're going through hard times? Listen, children of Israel walking through the wilderness have nothing. A tent, whatever their family, their tent. No place in it. You ever been to the wilderness in Israel? Uh, it'll give you a new understanding of desert. I come from desert, desert. So when people in Idaho say we live in the desert, I laugh at them. Yeah, no, where I come from, there's no water. You guys have water in the desert. Uh, in, in the Mojave, it's just desert. And in Joshua Tree, it's desert and Joshua trees, but it's just desert. Everything in the desert wants to kill you. If you touch it, it's poisonous or it's pokey. You know, you ever ride a motorcycle in the desert past a yucca plant and have a yucca plant hit you? It is capable of going straight through your motorcycle boot like a spear. Sounds like fun, huh? We should all go to the desert. Well, you go to the Israel desert. I'm going to up it one more. You go to the Israel desert and there's nothing. And just to make it more miserable... There's nothing but lots of little hills. So you're never going just straight. You're going like this. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Rock and dirt. But what did God do for them when they were in the wilderness? Every morning they woke up, there was food waiting for them. All they had to do was go pick it up. But you know what they complained about? They didn't have meat. What do you focus on? Do you focus on the goodness of God that you have? Or do you focus on what you don't have? Because the more we focus on what we don't have and what frustrates us or what Fox News says or whatever other things are going on, our attitude, can, don't you feel your attitude change? It just changes. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then pretty soon... I got to let it out. And when I let it out, all I did was make somebody else feel as miserable as me. Because I have yet to see somebody blow off steam, in which case they made someone better for it. Usually when you blow off steam, you just made two miserable people. And now it's going to multiply and two miserable people are going to go blow off steam and make four miserable people. But the, the word of God's going to want us to focus on God's goodness. Focus on what he has. Verse 24, what do we got to focus on? The Lord is my portion, says my soul. <clears throat> Therefore, my hope, I will hope in him. What's your hope? My hope is I can get out of debt. My hope is I can sell my house. My hope is I can get a good job. My hope is... But the Bible says that our hope is the Lord. If your hope is anything else, you are going to be drowning. And sounding like those cranky children of Israel shaking a fist at God because their belly's full but they had no meat. This is that which satisfies our inheritance. Oftentimes we talk about heaven and we talk about the people we want to see again in heaven. The people that we love that have gone on before us. 
But the greatest treasure of heaven is Jesus. He's the greatest treasure of heaven. He's our portion. Look at verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Wait for him. To wait upon the Lord, right? The Lord is good. We need patience. But usually when everything's falling down around us and everything's going wrong, right, and everything's leading to destruction and the whole city's burning and we feel like a woman who's lost it all sitting in the middle of the street, shaking a fist at God, crying out, Lord, why am I here? Why is this happening to me? The Lord would say, it is good. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. It's like David picturing, I got into the valley of the shadow of death and I sit down and I go, Lord, your presence is what I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I need to wait on the Lord. That idea of waiting is dependency on him. Are you dependent on him? Usually when we sit down to wait on the Lord, we develop our own plans, right? I have a, a you know, 50-step plan on how I'm going to get myself out of this. And uh, I'm going to wait here for the Lord for, for 30 more seconds. And if he's not here, I'm going to assume God wants me to run with this plan that I've just developed. Waiting on the Lord is dependency on him. Depending on him. Lord, you show me what you want me to do. It's never in a rush it is always patient and good to wait on the Lord to the soul who what's that next phrase who seeks him what are you seeking when we get into trouble and we're in pain and we're depressed and we're in despair what are we looking for if you are looking for anything other than the presence of God then you're going to just become more and more agitated. You're going to spin up the crazy cycle in your life so that you're an emotional wreck and you're coming unraveled at the seams and you're going to wonder, well, how in the world am I going to deal with this? Your eyes are on the wrong things. The Lord is calling us here, hey, put your eyes on me. Seek me. Didn't Jesus say something like that? Seek ye first the... What? Wait a minute. It said seek ye first? He didn't really mean that, did he? He doesn't know I can't make my house payment this week. So he really means seek first a solution to my problem. Is that what he means? No, because what's the rest of the verse say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. In the context, he's saying, don't be like the Gentiles who are worried about what they're going to eat or what they're going to wear. Just seek my kingdom first and I'll give you the rest. Trust me. What if he don't show up? You lose the house. That can't be God's will. Are you sure? We just read five poems of people who lost everything. House, property, family, literally everything. 
That wasn't God's will. That wasn't God's purpose for his people. We're going to read about that in just a minute. Verse 26, he says, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And this is where the problem is. When I read Job in Job, the book of Job, <coughs> excuse me, there is perfect harmony even in the midst of the loss of all things for seven days. How come? Because nobody said nothing for seven days. I, I had recently somebody was coming to me and asking me, you know, what should I do? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I go here? Should I go there? And my counsel to them was, you should be like Job. Put on sackcloth and ashes and sit still for seven days. Just don't do nothing. Sit still, seeking the Lord seven days. No words. He says right here, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now this is not talking about getting saved. This is talking about God delivering us from our problem. Delivering us from our despair. Delivering us from our depression. Delivering us from, you know, the valley of the shadow of death. Whatever the thing is. And in the context here, it was the destruction of the city. And God said, this is not going to be short. Not only is the city destroyed, but it's going to be destroyed. And you're not returning for 70 years. It is good. For you to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That's, that's not natural within us, is it? It's not natural. Do you know that the Bible tells in the book of Proverbs that you should never give full vent to your wrath? Anybody ever just been so mad they just told somebody, I got to get all this out? You know, the Bible says that you don't. Because when we, when we express that, like we talked about before, we're, we, just, we just bring other people down into our, our miserliness, our problem, our struggle, our difficulty. He says, rather than giving full vent to your wrath, just trust me. Spend your energy waiting quietly for the Lord. What do you mean, God? I got to tell this person what, what they need to hear. You better know you're the one for that. No? Better know. You better know. He says it's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I got a brother who's on the board with me who is really good at this. I'm not very good at it. I'm, I'll, I can remain quiet for five minutes probably. And then my opinion must come forth. And I'm trying uh, to grow in, you know, I need to listen. We could all learn to do that better, couldn't we? Listen. Most of the time, you ever had, you ever been in a conversation with somebody and they interrupt you? Let me tell you what that means. They're not listening. Because you said something and they already formulated an answer and now they want to interrupt and give it to you. 
And I am often that person. Ask Kathy, she'll tell you. So what I want to do is listen. Wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, for God's direction. Like Job, sitting in the middle of a field in sackcloth and ashes, quiet. Waiting for God's direction. Verse 27, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Now I want you to think about what's going on here. There's, there's a couple things I want to bring out. One, <clears throat> all of you are younger today than you will be tomorrow. I want you to think about that. Because part of the issue is we have a tendency to say, uh, well, if it's going to be 70 years, well, I'm not going to do anything. And that was not God's direction to his people either. We'll see it. We're going to look at it in just a minute. So, yes, we want to be silent. Yes, we want to wait on the Lord. Yes, we want to have God's direction. But we also want to bear the yoke while we're young. Don't wait 60 years. You want to know what happens when you wait 60 years? Nehemiah. It's a book in the Bible. You should read it. Nehemiah, finally the promises of God from Isaiah that Cyrus would come to the throne and turn the people loose and let them go back into the land to rebuild the temple. It happens. And they go back. And when they get there, you know there are people living there, right? Because they didn't wipe out everybody. They left behind a remnant. And most of that remnant ran to Egypt and died there. But some of the really poor people stayed in Jerusalem and lived in the rubble. Sixty years later, let's say Lamentations is ten. Let's just say seventy. Seventy years later, after the whole thing's over... Here comes Nehemiah with a group of people. They come walking into Jerusalem. And what did they find? Everything looked just like it did when they left 70 years ago. No walls. Not many homes. No temple. What were they doing? Nothing. We're stuck here for 70 years. We'll just wait for everybody else to show up. I don't know. Would it have been helpful for Nehemiah if somebody had built a wall? Maybe Nehemiah could have said, we're going we're gonna to build with one hand and hold the sword in the other, but we don't have as much to do. I don't know. They did nothing. They probably grumbled. They probably complained. They probably said things like I used to say. God hates me. You know, look at my life. I am, I'm living here in the rubble. I'm living here in the dirt. But it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. What was the yoke? You were yoked to another to do what? To labor. To accomplish something. So the call here is, hey, there's a need for perseverance. So <clears throat> sit quietly, wait on the Lord. 
God has promised in 70 years he's going to bring the people back and they're going to inhabit the land. So if you're someone still in the land, was there anything you could have done? Why not? God said they're coming back in 70 years. Did you believe it? Well, if you do believe it, what would you do? Would you get ready? Jesus told a parable about a guy that they gave talents to. And one guy took a talent and he doubled it. And another guy took a talent and, and, he, and he had more that he made also. And then one guy took the talent and, and when it came to give answer for his stewardship, it was bad, right? It's good to, to, to bear the yoke. You might say, oh, Jackie, I don't know if this is what he's talking about. Okay, well, we're just going to keep reading. Verse 29, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. It is good that a man would bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. What do you think that means? Let me give you an a, a American idiom. See if it makes sense to you. Put your nose. Oh, you guys have heard it before. Put your mouth in the dust and be quiet. Don't complain. Go to work. Go to work. Well, well, why am I working? I'm 40 years old and nobody's coming back for 70 years. You're right. You're not working for you. Who are you working for? Somebody else. Somebody else will be benefited by your labor. So go to work. Maybe, maybe you think, maybe I'm stretching it. Maybe I'm pushing this too far. He says, let them... Put his mouth in the dust, there may yet be hope. What's our hope? Seventy years from now, the people return. Seventy years from now, the, the nation will once again rise up from the ashes. That's their hope, right? That's the promise. Ultimately, our hope is Messiah. Our hope is Christ. So what, how should we relate to that? I know. You, there's a loss of election. Maybe you got, a, you got the president you didn't want. And you're a little depressed and you're looking at the world and it looks like it's circling the drain. I know what you should do. Put your mouth in the dust and hope in Christ. Which means get to work. What do we accomplish if we sit in a heap? If we need a safe place to cry? Are we going to accomplish anything? Is it going to benefit you? Maybe not. Is it going to benefit me? Maybe not. Will it benefit my children? Yeah. Engage. It's not over. Do we still have a commission? Do we have a responsibility to God? Is he expecting something from us? Do we know what that is? Okay, so if you don't have clear marching orders, you should do the ones you do have clear. Do you know the ones you do have clear? Husbands love your wives. That's a clear one, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. I know you don't like that one, but that's pretty clear too. How about go into every nation and make disciples? Is that clear? Well, it doesn't require special interpretation, right? You have clear marching orders. 
we do what's next on the list. What if we have to do it in the valley of the shadow of death? Still do it. We still go to work. This is my note I wrote under verse 29. Go to work and shut up. <laughs> it's hard to complain if your mouth is full of dust, right? You ever tried it? I might be thinking complaints, but I'm not saying them. <clears throat> Our hope is in Christ. I want to read to you Jeremiah 29 from verse 4 through 14. I'm going to try not to make any comment. But this is where my interpretation of this lamentation is coming from, okay? Uh, this is going to include a verse you guys know well that may be on your fridge. This should give you context. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles. Doesn't that sound nice? I said I wouldn't give comment. I can't do it. So exiles are slaves. Did we get that clear? These are guys in chains. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Otherwise we go, oh, they're exiles. Like, it has no context. Yeah, exile. They don't live where they want. They don't do what they want. They do what other people want. So he says, <clears throat> to all the exiles whom I have sent to exile. Who sent them? God did. Whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So these are the people who survived the destruction of the nation and went as slaves to Babylon. Here's what God tells them to do. What should we do now, Lord? We should sit and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And while we're waiting, we should probably do the things that are clear. What do you think? Verse 5, build houses. Is that clear? We need more comment. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. So God's telling the exiles, they go, they're few. They're few. Some would say as few as 5,000, that's small. But the Lord says, don't get smaller, get bigger. Grow there, have families. Give your children in marriage. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams they dream. It is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Sound familiar? Then I will call upon, or then you will call upon me and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortune, gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. In the lament that Jeremiah writes, I would suggest that his instruction to the people still in the rubble is the same. Build houses and live in them. Have children. Increase, don't decrease. I will come back. That does not sound familiar to you from a New Testament? We're almost to John 14. We're not quite there yet, but in John 14, Jesus is going to say, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions, many places to live. If it were not so, I would have told you. And know this, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I go to prepare a place for you, know this, I will come again. To bring you unto myself, that where I am there, you will be also. Stay here. Build houses. Have a life. Take care of your family. Plant gardens. Live. Live. Knowing that our welfare is the Lord. Our focus is on him. Look at verse 30. Not only live, not only, as he say, put your mouth in the dust. Put your eyes on your hope, right? There is still hope. There's still hope 70 years from now, but there's still hope. Well, I'm almost 70, so build for your kids. Build for your grandkids. Stay engaged. Continue to move the marching orders that God has given forward. Look at verse 30. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. That it was also applied to somebody we know, wasn't it? What does it say to Jesus? He gave his cheeks to those who plucked out his beard. Is our example Christ? Is it changed? Did he continue moving forward even despite the things that he suffered? Let's look at verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He's saying, look, though God caused grief, though you go to the valley of the shadow of death, that you don't stay there, right? What do you do? You go through the valley of the shadow of death from one end to the other. The Lord says, though I may cause grief for a time, it's not eternal. Our suffering is not eternal. Our difficulties, our problems are not eternal. They're momentary. Keep your eyes on the things that are permanent. Romans 11.1, 1, I ask you, has God rejected his people? By no means. Is God rejected? Is it over for them? No, he does not cast off forever look at verse 33 for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth three things we want to focus on as we go number one he will not crush you it is not for this is not designed for your destruction 
He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. Verse 35. Number two, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. He will not deny you justice. He will not. Now that may not be a comfort, but here is the comfort. He will not deny you justice in his presence. So part of the guarantee of justice is his presence. How do we, how do we survive the moment of justice before a holy God? Trust me, you're not good enough. How do we survive it? Jesus Christ covers us, right? It's his covering. It's his covering. He won't, you will not be denied justice in the presence of the Most High. The one who bore our penalty will cover you. Verse 36. To subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. What's he saying? To lie. To deceive. So this is not designed for your destruction. He will not crush you. He will not deny you justice in his presence. And he will not deceive you. He is your hope. Our Lord is great in his faithfulness. Our Lord is good in his mercy. And he guarantees his own that we will never be forsaken and you will never be cast off. He is my hope in my despair. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this time that we can come before you, Lord. We thank you just for the opportunity, Lord, to put our eyes on you. For God, indeed, you are worthy. And God, indeed, Lord, you, you are what, what, what we need. Every difficult circumstance I've ever endured in my life, I endured because of your presence. Because you gave me strength. Because you carried me. Because you brought me from the beginning to the end. Because you promised to finish the work. Because you will fulfill your promises to me. And while I may find myself under judgment, I may find myself being corrected by my Father in heaven. And it may not be pleasant. It may be outright miserable. Just like Job. May I sit in the dust and focus my eyes on my hope and be quiet, not complaining, not reviling. The Bible says that Jesus did not revile in return while men cursed at him and cursed at him and called him horrific names. He had nothing to say in return except, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. May we learn to suffer God's way. Not afraid to continue to work, even though we've lost our reason, maybe, for doing the work in the first place. Even though we're, it's hard to find our our focus, why am I doing this? We're doing this not necessarily for me. I'm doing this for the next generation. I'm doing this for 
my family. I'm doing this for those who will come after me. But my complaining and my... It doesn't do anybody any good. May I close my mouth and open my eyes. May I see you like the psalmist did. I will fear no evil in this place because you are with me. And you, Lord God, are everything I need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.